0: Hello and welcome to episode 29 of the Rugby Paper Podcast. Today we look ahead to bath season as well as looking at the misunderstood role of kicking in the game of rugby. Joining us to do this is former England fullback and kicking coach and recently appointed bath kicking coach John Callard. Chris and Nick, it's actually a brand new combination. I don't think it's ever been the two of you together without Brendan, but great to see you both. Nick especially, it's been a little while, so great to have you back. And we are with former England kicking coach, current Bath kicking coach and former England fullback, John Callard. How are you, John?
1: Very well, Ollie. Thank you.
0: Good, good, good. And you're gearing up for another season with Leeds Tykes. How long into pre-season are you now?
1: Uh, we've just finished pre-season and we've got our first game coming this weekend uh, where we'll be entertaining Taunton Titans. They gave us a fabulous experience down there at the end of the year. And I've got to give credit to Taunton Titans. They had a stadia that I thought was Fantastic for National One. Uh, their fan base was brilliant. The hospitality was brilliant. Everything right about National One from Torn Titans. So I'm hoping that we can duly uh, oblige this week and, and treat them royally.
0: What was the result when you played them at the end of last year? Uh,
1: I think we won comfortably in the end. We got our bonus point and uh, managed to stay up.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, I was going to say 13th in the table. And it was two teams that went down, didn't Yeah, Because Blackheath finished 14th and went down. So obviously narrowly avoided the drop, but you did have some good results towards the end of last season. I think 32 all against Cinderford was probably one that stayed in the memory.
1: Yeah, great game that game. And it, it was a bit, it was a bit of a dead rubber. You know, Cinderford were a little, shall we say, unhappy that they had to come up again, having having come up when it got snowed off. Uh, but we were grateful for the fact they came up. They brought a a, a mixed side. We had a mixed side. We played a lot of people who were playing their last game for us, and it was a fabulous advert for the game. Three to all. Everybody went away happy, and I think uh, a lot of the Cinderford boys did make their stag uh, stag weekend in Bristol afterwards.
0: <laughs> Good stuff, and they would have been hopefully not in too um, damp spirits. I don't know who who was winning until who got the last score.
1: Uh, they did, I think, just to, okay. To, to okay. It up so they
0: probably would have been in fairly good spirits then. And what are your overall just reflections on that? Was year one avoided the drop? Which, but what are your reflections going into year two?
1: It's a very attritional league. It's an attritional league. It's hard. It's demanding because there's a lot of travel involved. You travel the whole national country it is very, very physical. And uh, for me personally, I've kept 19 of the squad from last year. I've made five sign-ins this year. We're about 26 our squad at the moment, plus a development squad. It's about competing, but also, and I'm, I'm going to stick to my principles here, it's about development. It's about pushing people on and giving them the opportunity to play at the highest level from the surrounding area. And then those boys that are capable of going beyond we'll help them on their way so to speak we'd love to go to the championship we would love to play in the championship but that's the aspiration whether that will happen in the near future well we'll wait and see but we had three boys go to the championship last year uh, two props one center and also um one of our boys went to the premiership signed for bath Mike Catet. so it just shows that we are about development we want people to be pushed up to us and we'll push people up on as well so it's not just a matter of just Getting a side out to for fuller fixture—it's about growing the club and pushing people on to reach their potential.
0: I was going to say that seems like a very broad mindset when you're looking at not just the first team, but the club as a whole, and but the, you know the grassroots game, starting from juniors and working up.
1: Ollie, twenty-four months ago, even more uh, less than that they had eight players sign and there was no club. If it wasn't for the generosity of um, our executive members and, and our three investors, the club would have folded. It would have gone. Leeds tied to be no more. And this is our 30th year this year. You know, there was just a, a, a little flicker in an ember and, you know, we managed to get some oxygen to it and we're starting to grow. And, we, you know, we, we're currently at West Park. We use their facilities. We, we've just... Um, Got a partnership with uh, the University of Leeds and Beckett's now University in Leeds, which are two really good rugby-playing universities. So we're trying to grow a whole programme here for the city of Leeds. And, you know, what's the dream? Yeah, the dream would be to to try and get a premiership club back in Leeds, but we're a long way off that, yeah.
2: When you look at the situation at, at your tier of rugby at Leeds at the moment, and you look across the water to what's happening in France, do you see any comparison whatsoever
1: no sadly we're a mile miles and miles and miles off it i mean the stadia that goes down to federal one and below i think they have five professional leagues now of which i think that down to federal one it's televised live they have their own tv deal it's it's completely different to what we've got here And the other thing about French rugby as well, that I I marvel at the moment, they were some way behind in terms of their pathway, their development pathway, in terms of developing their youngsters. They have now adopted the model that they're developing youngsters who are now going straight into the uh, Pro 14 clubs so that they're they're not having to buy foreigners, so to speak, or overseas players. Those youngsters are playing in their senior size straight away, (laughs) lo and behold, They're available for their national side at senior level. The model works. And then if you've got all these leagues below pushing up, it's a pretty powerful, uh, they're in a pretty powerful situation.
2: And what do you you put it down to? What what, what does French rugby bring to itself that, that English club rugby has failed to do by
1: comparison? I just think the infrastructure. Building, but now, they do have it easier there in terms of cost, because I think the stadia is all picked up by the municipal council. So that's a lot it. of them are, certainly. Yeah. yeah, so that picks a lot off. I just think, though, when you go as a, um, a junior side, like England under-20s or 18s, and you go to a World Cup in France, the stadia, you know, little village side, the stadia is full. The whole community comes out and takes over. It's band, hot dog, you name it, everything that would make it a fantastic event. And... That's something that I think we struggle in this country. That the game on the Saturday is not the event that it used to be, and that's how we've got to get it back. You know, we want people to turn up who may not be rugby people but want to turn up on a Saturday, be part of the, be part part of the day, and feel that it's a worthwhile experience. I think. Do you think, John?
2: It's it's that part of the reason is because football is so overwhelming here, and in, in a way that probably it isn't. In large areas of France, I mean, obviously France has its big football teams, but but Racing would feel that they can stand at least in in the in the in the Parisian mindset. They can stand alongside Paris Saint Germain,
1: yeah, yeah,
2: which which is a bit of a stretch for any English club to say <laughs> we can do something. So Sale can't stand alongside the Manchester
1: football clubs, can they? No, no, they can't.
3: I'm I'm not sure that, um, you know, I mean, Racing have got uh, difficulties filling that ground at the moment, I think. I, I'm not sure that they, that they can stand alongside Paris Saint-Germain in, in terms of their profile. But what I do feel is that, you know, Bernard Laporte has lots of critics, but he has managed to pull the body politic, if you like, of the French game together in a way that has signally not happened in England. And I, I sort of think, you know, I look at the, the the thing about the stadium for Cornwall and so on. And I ask myself, okay, the French have got this municipal backing, if you like, for their clubs in terms of infrastructure, in terms of stadia, in terms of sponsors, local sponsors, getting behind clubs in a big way. But what are the RFU doing in terms of, you know, for example, I mean, you're at Leeds, what are the RFU doing in terms of working with local councils in order to, you know, in order to grow infrastructure, grow stadia in in this country? What's happening on that front? I'd say absolutely zip.
1: I think, Kenny, that's a question you'll have to ask the RFU. I'm not partly (laughs) to that, but I will say (laughs) that... um, You might have an opinion on it, John. Well, yeah, yeah, I I would, I would, I would have an opinion. There is I think there has been good investment in terms of the artificial pitches that makes the game um, available to younger age groups. Younger age groups, that's the point I'm trying to make about people playing the game on a good surface. Now, I don't think that surface, this is just my opinion, senior level is applicable. I'd rather see Deso pitches as standard across the league to, for the playing, playing welfare of the player. But at a junior level, where the RFU invested well, I say they invested in these pitches, it helps at the junior, junior level because you can get huge numbers on a good surface and allow those younger um, athletes, girls and boys, to, 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 to participate in our what I'll call it our beautiful sport. And it is a beautiful sport.
0: Before we get on to your role with Bath, John, which is obviously maybe your freshest bit of news, uh, I just want to say a little bit about the Saturday in the Rugby Championship. It's been one hell of a tournament so far. And we saw Australia surprise South Africa, which James Horwell saw it coming. Maybe we didn't uh, to quite the same extent on the Rugby Paper podcast. And of course, Argentina get their first win on all black soil. Nick Kane. What
3: what James Horwell didn't see coming was uh, the Wallabies being routed by uh, Argentina in the second two (laughs) games in Argentina. He certainly didn't see that coming. You're right, he did get, uh, he's got half of his prediction about um, Australia beating the Springboks, right? And we'll see what happens this weekend. But um, look, I mean, Argentina have been, Eddie Jones must be, Looking fairly, you know, with a, not trepidation, but must be looking at the fact that he's got a serious rival for finishing top <laughs> of their, the World Cup pool that didn't appear to be on the horizon uh, not so long ago. And what Czech has done there is fascinating. And what they did uh, against New Zealand, where they, they didn't have a great start to the game, but they hung in there, even though their scrum was under pressure for long periods and in the end they were you know richly deserved their win you know obviously new zealand's problems continue and their big the big uh, rubicon or end game for foster will be if they lose
0: the bledisloe cup he'll go even though they've publicly given him backing through to the world cup and they did after the set, the win over yeah, south africa
3: I, re- I reckon that the the clamor
0: might <laughs> i be such that they, Chris, they, you're like, pulling faces.
1: Why,
2: why would you do that? Why? Why? There, there was a whole rugby doesn't have crises. You know, governments have crises, but it, it, in in rugby terms, uh, there, there was an absolute sort of everything was on a calamity footing after that. After the the the, 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 the defeat, the initial defeat by South Africa, and Foster was was being was basically being strung up by everyone who who had an internet connection. So they they completely mess up the communications. I'm talking about the New Zealand Rugby Football Union here. They completely mess up the communications. They don't back him. Then they decide they are going to back him. Not only have they backed him, pretty much against the entire mood of the country. And you have to remember, this is a bloke who's had to get rid of all his... All his, his number two and his number three and his number four. So That never good, looks great for a leader, does it? When your whole team goes and he stays. But not only do they back him against the public mood, when they had ample opportunity to make the change that so many people in New Zealand wanted, but they give him an extended vote of confidence, which is the most stupid thing you can do. I wrote in a rugby paper, what happens if he lasts? If he loses his next five straights? I didn't imagine that that was going to be... That was going to start, the run was going to start in in, um, uh, in in New Zealand last weekend. But he could have a terrible run of results and the New Zealand Rugby Football Union just make themselves look fantastically stupid. I mean, really done. Because they didn't have to do it. I don't I don't know what possesses these people, seriously.
1: Ollie, there's uh, coaches now. There's two types of coaches. Those are being sacked and those waiting to be sacked and that's it. That's what happens. You've just got to be clever enough to move on before... The guillotine comes.
0: And John, do you think the guillotine is coming for Foster? Say he. Uh,
1: Listen, I I would never, ever speak ill for, you know, or want for somebody to be sacked in sport as a coach. You don't. If you're a professional coach, I'm a career coach. I have to earn a living out of being a professional coach. I would not wish that on anybody. And also, um, I can only imagine the, the suffering that he is going through himself and everybody associated with him. Whether you like the bloke or not like the bloke. You know, he's a professional coach and he'll be hurting as damned as more than anybody else, um, you, you know, that, that's in that role. It's probably the the most highest profile rugby job in the world. Um, we've all got stories about going to New Zealand and being told, you know, what our side and combination of our side is. So I can only imagine the pressure on him. And I feel sorry for him. I really do feel sorry for him. But there has to be, there has to be, it's not just down to one man. There has to be a collective of putting things right. And that might be a selection issue, might be a fitness issue, might be a mental issue, might be a management issue. Whatever it is, there has to be a collective. It can't just solely be on the responsibility of one person.
0: Yeah. And it seems like that was maybe what the, what the New Zealand board were trying to do is get that sense of collective back in saying we're giving foster the backing and I guess collective not only applies to backroom staff and players and coaches, it also applies to public and say, you know what, shut up social media trolls. Foster's here through to the World Cup, get behind everyone. Obviously, it's slightly backfired now.
2: You, you can't say this is all about collectivity and we're going to present a United front here, and then get rid of most of the coaching team. That's a very strange way of going about it.
0: Well, but the order was the opposite, wasn't it? Get rid of most of the coaching team and then give Foster your backing once they got one win against South Africa. Yeah, just just,
2: someone feeling the need that they had to do something. They had to do something, so they did something, whether that was right, wrong, or somewhere in the middle, and then completely messed up the messaging around Foster's position. They put him in a very, very difficult position. I, I agree with John, actually. I do feel very sorry for the bloke he's under a whole bag of heat in a terribly exposed position where the scrutiny is intense and it's become more intense with in the world in the digital world of course because everyone has a everyone has an opinion you know back in the day if i wanted to pick holes in john's performance in a in a number 15 shirt um i was one of t- 10 people who were doing it in public now there's 10
1: trillion can i just interject there you did you did chewy and i remember coming back to play and you said, I put down my Zimmer frame to come out and play at fullback in one of your articles. I think it was Quinn's first, mm. uh, first game of the season, a long time ago.
2: That was, I do respect time. to your longevity, John.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> he's, he's been saving that one up for a long time. <laughs> he has. He wishes it, it was an it in-person podcast. It wasn't
1: as bad as Barnes, he's mine. Barnes, <laughs> he said, I was an average coach, so, uh, an average player, so I was going to be an average, uh, an average coach.
0: Well,
2: well, well Stuart's sledgehammer wit um, uh, uh, strikes strikes again. But of course, of course, all players and coaches say they never read the press. So you're miraculously well informed, John. <laughs> Look, it is
3: a difficult situation. He's apparently he's a very good good man, as as, as most people um, in these uh, in the coaching world are. But it's you know, pro sport is a brutal business. And you know, we decided to become a pro sport twenty-five years plus ago. Now, and it does mean that he's accountable. You know, he's the he's where the buck stops on the playing front. But it is, you know, Chris's point just points to the 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 lack of high caliber administrators in the sport at the moment, right across the script. And um, yeah, you know, the NZ. RU's treatment of his position lacks any sort of empathy, I think. That's the way of the the pro world and, uh, you know, the pro sporting world.
1: I think also, um, Nick, you make a very valuable point there, is that the the people now in charge of these teams, they're not in charge of just 20, 30 guys. They're in charge of a multi-billion pound company when you look at it that way. You know, what the infrastructure and everything around. So Twickenham, you know, the business that Twickenham operates under, you know, effectively, that's the head coach. You know, they do well. Everything does well. And I think, you know, the, the, the thing of just it's just a rugby coach now, I think is it's, it's changed dramatically. It's more of a super CEO.
3: Well, maybe that needs to change. You know, that needs to revert. And um, they, they do need to take care of the rugby side of things and not Ooh. be the, uh, the CEO of the uh, of the whole operation, if you like. You know, Ooh. I mean, I don't know. I'm assuming that that that's where where you would like to be or are with Leeds, is that your job is the rugby side of it.
1: Oh, anything to do with rugby is mine. Uh, commercially. I, I don't get involved and all that side of things, just purely and simply on the rugby side. And I'm blessed because that's what I love most um, is, you know, the coaching, the tracks, the dealing with people, game plans. Um, that's the most exciting bit for me about the sport. It's not the commercial. And, you know, and there's hierarchical politics as well uh, mm. that, that I tend not to get involved with. I'll just leave that to somebody else.
0: And you must be fairly all over the place because congratulations on your new role as Bath's kicking coach, which I think was publicised a week ago. Something yes. like that. It's very, yeah. very fresh. Uh, so yeah. have you started yet?
1: Yes, yeah, so I've been well. I've been there for all of August.
0: So, OK. Yeah, okay. down there I August.
1: Uh, I know JVG. We worked together at the Blue Bulls. I think it was the first time they won the Super 14, I think it was. I had the pleasure of working with them in a week down there, George, and you and them going back that time. This came around and I was asked and, um, well, I'm not going to lie, I'd crawl back to Bath, you know. Yes. Um, I've got so many fantastic memories of the place, so many fantastic friends there, and maybe a few enemies that I need to win over again. But, you know, that's life, <laughs> particularly Chris Hewitt. I'm, I'm very lucky. Um to, to get back in there, you know. The, the, the exciting thing about Bath at the moment is the youth and the development mm, yeah. that they've got. I mean, look at the boys in the back, like, right, the Jomo, the Muir, you know, Red Path. It's just fantastic. It really is, and exciting. But for the moment. avoidance
2: of doubt, John, I was a devout supporter yeah. of you in the Bath number no. 15 shirt whenever Matt Perry was unavailable. <laughs>
1: In my era though, Hughie, I used to wear the 16 shirt, if you remember rightly. You did. Yeah. You did. That's you, why did you, were... in, <laughs> yeah.
2: you did, in fairness. John, could you I mean you, you were in the thick of that famous when Bath were winning a whole stack of stuff. I suppose you were what the second half of that golden yeah. decade, I suppose. And I know it's a different era and different, you know, generations have gone past in a sense since since those days the game has been transformed. But I, I remember because I was Quite close to the club at that time, I remember the sort of the whole sackcloth and ashes thing. Whenever you even came close to losing, whenever you came close to losing, could you, from a distance and not being involved in Bath last season, could you sort of believe your eyes just when you looked at a Premiership table and saw Bath at the bottom?
1: No team is, no team has the right to just be top of the pile. Look what happened to Leicester, the mighty Tigers as a club. And that is a mighty club, you know, what, 25,000 stadia, 21,000 season tickets. It's what a brand. And look where they were. So it does happen. And I'm not going to offer judgment on that because I'm not interested. That's gone. My focus now is purely supporting that club, those coaches, that head coach, and all the staff that work there. And by the way, what I mean by all the staff there, the people who cut the grass to the chefs, to the kit man, to everybody. it's everybody that you're supporting, not just the players. Uh, And that's my focus. And I'm not going to offer an opinion on what's happened. And it's all right to say what we did in our year to this year, but every club goes through it. As we just mentioned, there were Leicester and who will be the next Gloucester were down there at one stage and rebuilt backwards.
3: uh, A lot of of your, uh, your, your former teammates have talked about the, the changing culture at the club and, cultures change as we know but they pinpointed one thing as being pretty significant and I'm very interested to hear what you whether you think that being at a place like Farley House having that sort of facility has impacted on the rigor and ruggedness of the outlook of the sides that have pulled on that jersey because lots of the guys that you played with feel that the, the discomfort and the uh, conditions at places like Lambridge were actually part of the making of, uh, of that side. So what do you reckon?
1: Probably jealousy, really. <laughs> Having go into a pitch that was covered in sand down at Lambridge, um, normally three inches deep in water, you know. And yeah, listen, is that fact or is that just an excuse where they are? Because all the top, top football sides and some of the top rugby sides, the facilities are to die for. So is it an excuse we just say, oh, it's too grandeur, it's too nice, it's too this? I think what you need to look at is the appetite within, not, not the surroundings, is that where does it come from? And, and as I just mentioned, there are a lot of young boys there are finding their feet. And if you keep those young boys together, with what I believe now is a very exciting coaching team, not myself out of it, by the way, JVG, Faria, um, Mad Doc Maddox, you know, brilliant. And you've got Neil Hatz there, who's the sort of conduit of past and charters. from there. You know, you've got a real powerful coaching team. Now, if you can help those boys get the experience and they stay together, you know, collectively, I can't see why Bath can't go on and march up that table. And let's be fair, you know, is it a club in decline? It's got 9,000 season tickets sold out already. It sells out most weekends. Now, you can't take that for granted, but that shows that there's still a passion and there's still a want for for, for rugby in Bath.
0: Do you think then, because there has been discussion about Bath Rugby Club potentially losing a bit of connection with its heritage and obviously one of the clubs that's most inextricably tied to the city in a way that a lot of clubs in the UK aren't. Do you think that the res- the discourse around having perhaps lost that connection is primarily linked to re- the results of, well, the last season or two?
1: Possibly, but not solely. There's many reasons. There's many reasons. I thought some of the games last year, Bath, were, there were some some games where, okay, okay, we won't talk about it. but there's other games where they've been comfortable and lost it in the last 20, you know? And I think Chewy there mentioned it in our era. You, you never lost the game until... Um, until you reviewed it on a Monday night. (laughs) You know, as simple as that. You know, That was the mentality we had. And I think, again, that's not, that's down to experience. You know, look, I was very fortunate to play in a side, you know, with all those internationals that had far more experience than me. And it just rubbed off on me. And I just think the same will happen again, look at Leicester. I keep repeating myself about Leicester. You know, they've done a fabulous job in Steve Borthwick and Kevin Sinfield. So, there's no reason to doubt that Bath can do the same.
2: How do you how do you set about John developing the um, the psychological toughness, the the, the hardness, the, the 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 blood and guts sort of attitude that defined Bath? I mean, I mean, you scored all the points famously in in in, in the Heineken Cup final in in I think '98, um, which was a game that on any Reasonable measure, reasonable measure of statistics or data or analysis or whatever you want to do, you shouldn't. Really, you shouldn't really have won. There, I mean, there were there were extraordinary um, moments in that match. The goal line stand towards the end, your goal kicking, you know, from all angles. Um, a try pretty much out of the Adler blue. It was a phenomenal backs to the wall performance, which ended in the sort of ultimate club prize for you. That was a triumph of of spirit as much of, of anything and, and togetherness. How do you set about reconstituting that at Bath?
1: That's through time. There's no other there's no other way for it. It's through times and experiences. And you've got to you've got to experience those road bumps, speed bumps, the things that slow you down, the the things that take your complacency away. You're learning, you know. I, 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 it's it's interesting when when one of your questions coming up, and I think, oh, who's the greatest player I played played against? so oh, I think one of the best players I ever played against, and it took me back to a game where we got smashed at Saracens. Bath got smashed, fifty odd points. The first time we had fifty odd points in myself being in a Bath ship, and that left a real dark scar in front of you. And those those moments are the learning moments. Not winning by fifty points, not running out winners comfortably wherever it's those dark moments where you get and people are you know in the changing room Oof, that was that was a tough school bath a really tough school and you stood there and somebody's giving you what for an old teammate looking you in the eye and dressing you up and down in front of you know in front of everybody else that was a tough learning school and you take that with you and you take that with you back on a Monday Tuesday Wednesday whatever it was in your training and then the next game you go out and put it right that's how you do it. It's not some magical, mythical sort of, here you are as a paper, read this, you get mentally tough. No, it's built over years and years of experiences. And that's why people need to be patient with the young group, because they're talented, but they've got to gain that experience. They've got to get that experience. And another another one, again, Bath, I remember um, the, the locals were calling for Andy Robinson and myself's head, we were going on an awful run. We had an awful run. And it just clicked overnight down at uh, the stoop where we played London Irish. And I think we put 40, 50 points on them just out of the blue like that. And it just changed. It just changed. So it's all those learning experiences make up the big pot. I'll, I'll argue with anybody about, um, you know, we've got to do this on a piece of paper and you've got to do this, do that. No, the only way you learn is out there.
2: It does help, doesn't it, John? It, 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 I mean, there, there, there was a spell, undeniably, when the Bath Academy was one of the lower-performing academies. I'm talking some time ago now. was one of the lower-performing academies uh, in, in, in the premiership. It does seem to be producing a pretty healthy number of genuine first-team contenders now. Um, do, do, you, do you sense that there's another generation of players um, coming through who may be able to really shove this club forward?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I've seen I've seen boys train, and I'm, I'm, I don't want to talk about individuals, but I've seen boys train. And I think, wow, these boys have got something special. And they've got something special in different ways. You know, they add something in different parts of the game that will make a game plan work or make a team tick. So there are some special boys there. Um, and they're fully integrated. They're fully integrated. They're learning. Um, and, and again, one of the things about uh, our... I talk about England and the pathway development about England. You know, the successful clubs have been where the best youngsters have trained with the best senior statesmen. So they're not kept apart. So that learning is shared and that knowledge from the senior bloke who knows all the tricks and the trades can help that youngster. And that's and that how it works, you know, and that's where the most successful sides get to developing their players a lot quicker is because they, they, they galvanise them, they make them feel equal, they make them feel part of it, and they, they, they've got value. Instead of, oh, there's a pipeline coming over here, you know, and we won't look at them until whenever. No, no, they're fully integrated. And I think that's the best way um, going forward. I hope so. Um, there's, there's, the, there's nothing better than Bath um, seeing boys come out of Beecham Cliff, coming into the first team. And I think we've, we've had a few come through and go elsewhere kicking drop goals in the last minute for Leicester to win titles as well. <laughs> Freddie, you know, uh, and Billy, you know, two great blokes, you know, went to Ulster as well. So there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, the pipeline there, coming out of there and uh, and helping Bath once again.
3: Do you think that, um, that their development will be helped or hindered by the fact that there's um, a uh, continued
1: moratorium on uh, relegation? Oof. I think I'll chuck it back at you <laughs> is how we create better playing opportunities for those youngsters. So they're playing regularly week in, week out. That will be better for their development is that they're playing regular rugby. In what guys, what form, I don't know, but they need to play. Boys need to play. It's all right playing four Prem Cups a season or whatever it is, mm. Um and then you see sides when they get a sniffer winning it. Go full go full goo. I mean, <laughs> dare, dare I
3: say it, you know. I mean, obviously the A-League's been a been a bloody disaster in the premiership. You know, I mean, there's a hell of a lot that's not right. And, you know, I mean, the best place for those kids to play, if they're not getting regular first team rugby, is to play for a championship club or a national one club. You know, uh-huh. that's where they ought to be. Getting game time, you know, not sitting, not sitting bloody well, you know, peddling uh, at training sessions and getting no game time. You're, you're, You're in the game to play it.
1: Yeah. And, you know, do you know what? You know, it's not me. I would check this out. Let's look at something that the championship can include students and sevens. Let's have a look at a proper pathway that helps people to come through, you know, boys and girls to come through. I mean, student rugby is massively, the Super Bucks, you know, is is on a high, the budgets of some of the universities are spending on their rugby, fantastic, doing a great job. Academic, playing rugby, fantastic. How can we embrace that with a sort of championship programme and fulfil, because I think sevens is very important for our development as well. Because there's many ways that you can come around, you know, circumvent your way around to come into the first team of England. There's many ways. You can come the sevens group, you can come the champion group, you can come the academic group, you can come the club group. There's all these, there's all these tributaries that we need to help grow and come into the you know the, the motorway if you, like. you
3: You talked about the dream at at, uh, at Tykes, getting, you know, getting them back into the uh, into the premiership at, at some stage. I mean, how do you, how how do you feel with the situation regarding promotion and relegation and the fact that actually at the moment you can't get there?
1: I'll worry about that once we get in a position to get there. Mm. It's not not for me to offer a comment here because I'm nowhere near it. Leeds are nowhere near that situation, so I can't offer a comment on that. I can't offer a comment because I'm not involved in the club at any level to say, what are the financial implications? The thing that I would like to see is below a stronger tier that pushes up more teams that have the opportunity to, to, to put their name forward. Doncaster did it last year and Ealing. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be great where we have five or six teams pushing themselves up?
3: With well they they talent. as you say they both did it. And um, you know, the, the one that won it didn't get anywhere. You know, I mean they're they're still sitting back where they were. I just do you think that that's a healthy a, a healthy situation for the game i suppose the flip side is is that we've got a club like worcester that looks as if it could be you know if it's not rescued it could be going to the war or it could be going into receivership or whatever it seems to be that there is a stasis in the uh, in in the english club game at the moment and is it doing you know is that lack of competition for a you know a side like bath the fact that they could You know, finish bottom again, and that there's no penalty for it. Is that the right? Is that the right direction for our game?
1: Possibly not from a a neutral's point of view, because the entertainment factor is gone. Um, Whoever's at the bottom, you know, two teams or three teams or four teams. I remember being with Leeds back in 2005, the year I left. There was five of us who were in that relegation uh, slot, and it changed every 10 minutes through the last last period of, of the matches the sale, Harlequins, uh, Leeds, Bang, so-and-so. So. I mean, being part of that was hell of an experience because at one stage, Leeds were down. And then we managed to get our try through Matt Holt and moved up to eighth and then the places went down. That was all on the last day. That was unbelievable entertainment, mm-hmm. you know, for, for the right or wrong reasons. And society's tough, we know that it's tough, but promotion relegation is just like anything in society. You know, there's winners and losers. And if you're saying to me, it would categorically help our game, help our game, I'd bite your hand off for it. But what are the implications of the financial side that outweigh that, you know, stability to build clubs and inject money into facilities to help players develop rather than yo yo up and down?
2: It's, it's simply not an argument. It's simply an argument that... There has been no resolution to it. I mean, Mark Evans, who I think you know, the, the 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 former Harlequins chief exec and head coach and everything else, just going over to Fiji now to start a new a new chapter in his in his um, extraordinarily broad rugby career. Best of luck with the Generals, Mark. I'm sure you'll get on very well with them. Um, I mean, I agree with him on almost on a whole lot of stuff around. Where rugby is, what its problems are, what challenges it faces, what on the way through those challenges. He's got a whole load of bright ideas, but he is an absolute died in the wool franchise campaigner. Yeah. No relegation. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make financial sense at all for the game. He's an observer of American sport. He says, no one gets relegated in the NFL. No one gets relegated in baseball. No one gets relegated in ice hockey or basketball. And they are hugely successful sporting uh, structures. So he thinks that relegation is ludicrous. Hmm. I come at it from a sort of bit of an old-fashioned view of, you know, meaningful contests and jeopardy at the top and the bottom of a division is what makes the world go round. And I'm not sure, actually, how... The resolution comes about because those are those are polar opposites.
3: Yeah, they are. And Chris, one of one of the things is, and it's 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 the one bit. I mean, I've had a, f- a few um, conversations with Mark as as you, and one of the things that is constantly mi- missed out in the narrative about American sport is that if you take, let's just take for example American football, nobody plays after high school. Apart from the tiny percentages who go on to play college football and then pro football. So it is effectively, after 17 or 18, it's a non participation sport.
1: Mm.
3: Our culture is one of participation in sport. That's the whole, you know, the whole concept. And we touched on it earlier on, and we're looking at participation figures falling and the necessity for this game to really push back against that and fast. And at the moment, there seems to be a sort of lot of twiddling, uh, twiddling
2: of fingers and thumbs. Do you you sense, John, that um, with with the academy structures, let's say, and you've been involved in this stuff a a, a long time now. So you you get kids, massive rugby enthusiasts, you know, they want to play. They want to be involved in a game like any other any other sporting kid they have their dreams of going as far as they conceivably can but they're a bit small at a given age at a given age they're a bit small they miss out on the big step into some kind of whatever it is regional coaching or, or 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 just the equivalent of top end coaching at their age group and if there's no other pathway available to them they're going to be lost they go and do something else I mean, there is a problem in rugby of people falling at the first hurdle and not reaching the second, ever.
1: Yeah. and I came back to my first point that I made about we, we are inclusive as a sport, irrespective of size, somatotype, age or ability. We are inclusive. And I think that's where we need to perhaps modify things at age groups that keep people involved in the game. And if you see poor old Billy standing on the wing there and hasn't touched the ball for whatever, you'll get disillusioned. So you, you have to think of ways how you can get him involved and integrated and feeling that he's had a word, worthwhile experience of playing the game. The other side of it that we forget, that it's, it, it's not just about playing the sport that I think is important, but I think it's the friendships and the value that the sport brings that we underestimate. We all talk about, oh, it doesn't play, it doesn't play. But rugby has got massive value in bringing new people, making friendships, teaching you life skills. And we, we, we don't touch on that. And that's something that I think is very important. You know, there was a lovely video that was doing the rounds about a young kid talking to another kid, you know, very emotional about you're the best, you can do that. That is what rugby is about. And we forget that. We, we forget what it, what it offers people. Um, we just talk about this bloke drops out because, you know, he's not touching the ball, he's too small. We can put that slightly negative aside and say, look, he's still got a part to play because we can modify it for this, this and this.
0: I want to put this discussion on hold because, John, it's almost time for your random rugby 15. Before we do do that, I actually want to pick your selection brains, John. Um, oh. every, every time we have a former England player on, we ask them for their, their units that they would pick, obviously a back three player yourself. I'm going to, and hopefully the 15 jersey particularly, is quite an easy one at the moment. But I'm going to ask you for your starting England back three if the World Cup were tomorrow and if everyone were available.
1: Johnny May. Yeah, I'd love to see him back to his former glories. Still, absolutely. I like that somebody like uh, Radwan, sheer pace, coming off his wing, being a nuisance, a bit like the all-black in the 2015 World Cup, the small winger.
0: Lehi Milner Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, come on.
1: That's, that's, yeah. That's, you know, you've got plenty of talent there. I'm probably missed out a few. One thing I wouldn't do is play people out of position. Mm. Play people in their position, in their rightful place, who they know what they're doing week in, week out. I think, in in terms of, you've got a a fullback there, quick, leggy kicks, fantastically aerial. You'll cover all that space. Radwan, fit. Yeah. Johnny May. There and done it. And then your people like Jack Knoll, whoof, what a handful. we pocket rocket when he comes on. Arundel, will he be a bolter for me? Let's see how he goes for London Irish this year. Because you know, he is one powerful guy. You know, first touch in international rugby broke through three tackles or two tackles and score. But again, manage that development. Yeah. Manage that development.
0: Cool. Thank you for doing that, John. And sorry but not sorry for putting you on the spot you're less put on the spot with the random rugby 15 because I did send them to you in advance so should we get going with that okay nickname
1: uh, oh, oh, JC
0: best rugby memory
1: uh, best memory rugby memory I'm not at it yet because I don't get out of bed but I think winning the Heineken Cup would be pretty close
0: most embarrassing rugby memory
1: Um, I'll pass on that nothing no there's a load, but I oh. just want to make it, I just want to make it, you know. <laughs> but it's, 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 you know, it's, you, can, you can use it. <laughs> <laughs> Follow-up
0: questions later. Uh, pre-game tune?
1: Don't really listen to much, to be
0: honest with you. Post-game meal?
1: A few Thatchers and a good curry.
0: Nice. Best player you've played against?
1: Got to be Michael Liner.
0: Best player you've played with?
1: Uh, that will be the Prince, Jeremy Guscott.
0: Favourite player right now?
1: Yeah. Marcus Smith and Orlando Bailey. Two young, young boys who've got the future ahead of them and can shape the next generation.
0: How's Orlando been since you came into camp?
1: What a nice guy. really. Yeah, delightful. that's
0: what everyone says. Rugby yeah. idol.
1: Uh, it's got to be Sir Gareth Edwards.
0: Favourite stadium?
1: Uh, well, I'm going to have two. Um, and this is in the order. The Wreck Mm -hmm. because the memories it brings back, and also uh, Kings Park in Durban. Oh, nice. That's a new one.
0: Favourite gym exercise?
1: The vending machine.
0: Occupation if rugby didn't exist?
1: I'd like to be a salmon farmer. Farm salmon.
0: (gasps) Wow. (laughs) Not what I expected, but very enjoyable. Superstitions?
1: (laughs) Uh, Oh, Where do we begin? Uh, New boots on tables, walking under ladders, saluting magpies putting the right sock on first. Um, yeah, you name it. Yeah, loads of superstitions.
0: Everything. nice. Rugby um, law you would change?
1: Two. One, the knock-on. You're not allowed to play it if you knock it on the other side, get it and play straight away. If you interfere with it, it's a penalty against. So the knock-on should be treated as just a free play and play on. And I would, controversially devalue the scrum. penalties and scrum.
0: Best thing about working in rugby?
1: The people. I think it just brings a unique group of people together and it's one big family.
0: So where's the salmon farmer desire come from? Is that a long-burning flame?
1: <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I was going to say farming. I, you know, I'd, I'd like to think farming because I'd be on my own with no mates and just my people like that, you know, best way to be. And I thought, no, no, there's something about it. So I really love, love salmon. And I thought, you know, watching these programmes of how it's cultivated and grown on a mass scale, I thought, wow. That would be a great industry to get into.
0: Is that a world announcement as well? Have you ever told anyone that publicly?
1: Uh, no, no. Well, uh, maybe it was um, maybe in the National Academy once when we had to uh, go around a quick Robin of questions. Yeah, And uh, they were a bit surprised as well because one of them was an actual farmer, not a salmon farmer.
0: So we've got a breaking story there. John Callard wants to be a salmon farmer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, if the rugby doesn't go well, I might end up doing that. I'll tell you that now. There's enough people like you boys to shoot me down. In there, Chewy. <laughs>
2: Oh, it's a big, wide world out there, John. We, 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 don't, we don't wield the muscle we once did. I'm afraid every, everyone's a journalist now, John.
3: Yeah. We should just, just touch on the scrum, just uh, very, very, <laughs> very briefly. What? So, what, what, what were you proposing, John?
1: Um, that I think we shouldn't have the m- amount of penalties that we have in the scrum game at the moment. I think every effort should be made to use ball and um, maybe not devaluing it in, in the sense of depowering it, but devaluing it in terms of the penalty of being being awarded. I yeah. I,
3: do you know what? I, actually, I couldn't agree more. You know, I mean, the, the, the fact that I, I guess of the number of scrums that are actually awarded at the moment with free kicks, um, resets, et cetera, et cetera. I mean what, 50% of them don't get completed. I mean, that's no good for the sport. I still think that the setup process, which I understand is all for welfare protocols, but in a way, I think that if you go back to the way that scrums were set, you go back, you look in the 70s, you know, the, the, the players were the people who were responsible for setting the scrum and for putting the ball in. Uh, once the referee had called the scrum. And it just seems to have got extraordinarily complicated. It's all too convoluted. It needs to be a contest. It needs to be a contest of skill, as it used to be with hookers striking for the ball. Uh, But it doesn't want to be something that takes, you know, five minutes to complete, apart from, you know, the equivalent of goal line stands, and we're not getting too many of them these days. So... I I agree with you. You know, the scrum needs to be looked at again. It needs to be simplified. And the easiest way of doing it is to make sure that there is no uh, exaggerated hit on contact, that the scrum is stable and square and nobody's putting the weight on until that ball's put in. That is done and the scrum will be restored to the place that it ought to be uh, in the game. Rather than a sort of whistleblower exercise,
1: just Nick, just from my my experience last year in National One, and there are some terrific scrummaging sides in National One, big units who can scrummage really well. We'll take a beating all day long if you know they're good, they push us back, push off the ball, whatever. We'll take a beating on that. That's the best case, and that's us getting under pressure and being pushed back, you know. So we need to address that. That's fine, I get that 100%. But what I can't have is in one game in National One where we had 26 scrums. 19 were unplayable, either free, free kicks or, or penalties. Mm. You know, we've got 30 guys there who want to show their ways. And, and in fact, that day, I won't say what game it was, that day, there was two good back lines who wanted to play against mm. each other. But it was often back 10 metres that way or back 10 metres that way. It was just, it wasn't part of the product. No. it was
3: poor. Sure, I mean, uh, just just a question. Have you got hookers who can strike? Because, you yes. know, one of the one, one yes. of the, you remember the game as was, um, when you were playing for Bath, they weren't often under the cosh scrum-wise, but you got the New Zealanders, for example, at times um, have not had particularly great scrums. They're be- much better now. But the quick heel, the fast heel is the easiest way of making sure that if you're the weaker scrum, that you can still play the ball. And yet we went through a period which must have lasted whoa, 15 years where you got hooked who couldn't hook
2: well the, the, the French the French started that didn't they by effectively picking three props and just and just going for the big hit but but back in the, back in the 70s mm. as, as you alluded to Nick it was just a fold in. Mm. the scrum happened when everyone got there yeah. and they folded in That's... from a very very short distance yeah. so there was no impact threat and no threat of a collapse because of impact because there was no impact as such the scrum was live once they'd folded in and, and, and the scrum had formed. Which is a far better way of going about it, and, and one of the horrifying things, actually, is if you watch the the, the seventy one Lions is still on YouTube, the last test in New Zealand, which they drew to win the series, all that historic test with all those great players. If you include what then passed the resets, there were more than forty scrums in that game, and cumulatively they took a shorter time than the ten scrums you get now. Yeah, yeah, madness. Mm. And and, and, a cra- and, a, and a spectator killer, actually.
0: Yeah. Let's move on to the kicking game. We've got about, John, my first question for you is, we had Brian Ashton uh, on last week. And to loosely quote him, and I can't remember quite exactly what he said, but he joked that there was no such thing as a good kicking game. And I just, I wanted to know what, what feelings that statement created in you.
1: I would say that's a typical Brian comment. <laughs> you know, take the pin out chuck it over there, just create a big crater and just watch him stand there going like that. Now, I can say that about Brian because I love him. I love him dearly. And, um, you know, as, as one of the coaches go, is one of the best that I've ever worked with and worked under. So I can say that about Brian. Um, the kicking game. The kicking game is not understood. It's, 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 it's left late to develop in a child's development. We miss the opportunity to develop kickers between four and nine in the development pattern of, of of maturity. It is not understood. So there's there's one thing there's there's one thing I just think about here, is that the game is made up of run, kick, pass. Okay, if you take away the kick, the defense only have to run worry about the run and the pass. If you take away the pass, God forbid, you've only got to worry about the run. So. You keep those three things in there in an all balanced game will give you a, a better attacking ability, so to speak, because a good, a good running game could be also a good kicking game as well. So it's about using it and utilizing it to the effect of breaking down and manipulating the opposition. So there is a good kicking game. and then. The other bit that I would talk about as well, and I'm going to chuck something in here right at the end of this that will get people thinking, maybe they may think I'm mad, is the kicking game is thought about battles. Boom, 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 boom. No, just think about the kicking game as a two-kick cycle. And if you win the second kick, you play. Simple as if you kick and they don't kick back, you win, you play. If they match you, you start the cycle again. Go, bang. It's that mentality to try and win that battle within two kicks. So if you, the, the, the best ball you can have in, 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 in rugby, I believe, is getting a kick return and playing against an unstructured defence and coming alive. And that you need a kicking game for that to open up. So your kicking game is promoting that to get a kick return that will allow you then to counter-attack and run against a, an, an unstructured defence. So,
2: so tell, me the, tell me this, John. Uh, someone, someone told me, it was Greg Tangent actually, told me back in 2015, during the World Cup, we were talking about Daniel Carter. And he said that he knew, Gregor knew somebody down in Christchurch who uh, who had said that there was one season when Carter was playing for the Crusaders where 100% of his kicks, 100%, i.e. he didn't miss one of these, either fangrass or was contestable, which is astonishing that Carter was a pretty astonishing player. Yeah. In your view, is there a good kick which doesn't find grass or is not contestable, i.e., just one down somebody else's throat at the other
1: end of the pitch? No.
2: No. So they should all find grass or, or be
1: contestable. Or um, the crossfield kick for your own. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Your own. Your, your own. And also the little self grubbers where you can put them through and get them to sit up. That skill of breaking down defenses. Um. Yeah, generally, though, as a rule, you would not want to give it to somebody on the fly coming back at 100 miles an hour, whether you haven't done, you haven't filled your backfield, you're going to expose yourself right up. We see a lot of them, don't we? Sadly, we do, yeah. Sadly, we do. And it's more because the chase team will come up and be the dominant factor. But it's actually looking at the cycle of breaking that down. And when I go and when I talk about the two kicks, you know, the kick to contest or the, the reason being why you wanted to hit turf. You know, so a, ter- a term that I use is turf and turn. So hit the turf and make the defence turn. Gives you defensive like puts pressure under there, puts pressure on the kicker. Does he put it out or does he spoon it back in field? And then we get a ball back at halfway and bang, we're ready to play. That's one of my philosophies that I've always is, stuck to.
3: Is there anything new in the kicking game, do you think, JC? Any new sort of developments at all?
1: I think we've seen the, the re- re-emergence of the spiral kick yeah um which I'm delighted about because that is art. And you know when you looked at people like uh, Ogara and Wilkinson writing their pomp, that the spiral kick was a, was a, to me was a thing of beauty watching it because it's a skill. It's a really yeah. good technical skill that, that went missing from the game. So like the spiral bomb, technically mm. to do that under pressure is hard. George Ford, master of it, I think that's brilliant.
3: I'm intrigued also by the idea of the ball, the changing shape of the ball. If you look at the ends of the ball now, they're pretty rounded. Whereas in the past, you used to get something that came to a point. Well, um, different different
1: ends, But of
3: the, you know, the, the kick that you get, or the bounce rather, that you get from a ball hitting the turf, if you've got, a more significant point on the, uh, on the end of the ball is much less predictable than it is now. Yeah. Uh, we've yeah. seen this, the, the, this shape change, you know, um, significantly over the last sort of 30 years, I think, something like that. Would you like to see a little bit more jeopardy in terms of the bounce of the ball?
1: Well, I think the bounce was, is still there. I think probably you're looking at the services that make a difference okay to the ball it not... seems to
3: sit up a lot lot yeah. more than it yeah. used and to. that's
1: and that's probably because of the services now are much much better than 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 they've ever had been yeah. so i'll come back to this is the point that i was going to make about you're talking about the ball and this might go down like a lead balloon but i believe the ball should be that the capability of the ball should be able to go longer not shorter you should be able to kick the ball longer and if manufacturers can design a ball that allows the ball to go an extra 10-15 meters. What does that do to the defence? The defence have got more space to cover, Your yep. kicking game is longer, and yeah. you get more activity in trying to break down. There was a time when oof, I was involved with a manufacturer going back oof, to yesteryear, that there was a directive coming out to say the ball should not travel so far. And my, I just put my head in my hands and said, no, because all you're going to do is congest everything into one area. It's not going to create space by having the ability to knock a ball, you know, 60 meters mm. is going to create defenses to hold. Why, why in football, we've got that and look at what a, a long ball in football, what that creates to a, um, a side counter-attacking out. Yeah. It creates the, it creates a space. I know they go up to the halfway, but the ability to ping it over the top and put a runner on it just creates a different sport. Mm. And that's, that's my view is that, you know, give me another 10% out of that ball. Um, and, is there anything wrong with being able to kick a goal from 50, 56 metres? Is there? Penalty? Well,
3: it, it keeps defences honest.
1: Is there anything wrong with it? Who's to say in sport that you can't kick goals from 56 metres mm-hmm. if you've got somebody who can do it?
2: Well, I, well, I was going to ask you that, John. When you, when, you, when you were goal kicking, what would you have thought was your range, the, the outer limit of your
1: range? Uh, I, I've struck one from 55 for, at Northampton. That's because Steve Lando wound me up so much. I uh, put the ball down on my tee trying to steal a yard. So it was just about a yard inside the, the halfway into an our half, and he kicked it off the tee and knocked it back a yard. He says, it's from there. Well, so I looked at him, and I went back an extra three yards, put the ball down, and I was absolutely raging. <laughs> and uh, this thing flew and, flew and flew and flew and flew and went into the stand. I didn't look at him. I just had a slight smile to myself. <laughs> and back it it, to is, my it
2: is a symbol of your career as a rugby player, Don, isn't it? <laughs> Basically the referee wham me up so much I kicked it 20 yards further than i never ever kicked it before. <laughs> um, but um, we, we are seeing a hell, I mean, the, some of the range of kicking at the moment is is enormous, isn't it? Are you are you, some, are you in any way surprised at, at the power that these bloke, or the, no. the combination of power and timing that these blokes are generating?
1: Timing, technique, skill. You know, it's an art. Is it, it's, is it any different to, oh, here we go, we get into a debate about golf as being to drive it 400 yards. Are we getting into that? But that's the skill that they possess then. But it's also the skill of using the technology that's presented to them. You can't blame people for upgrading their technology and, and getting better. That's what happens. We, we almost like say, so, ooh, in my day, we can't do it. Well, things change. And if you think, if we can get 10% more distance and if that equates to ten percent less collisions in the game, then I would take that every time
2: who, who are the best around at the moment, John? do you think I mean, I mean on, on, a, on a world basis, not just premiership, but I mean are there any kickers who 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 startle you at all? are you sort of think... the, um,
1: the the winger for Argentina Oh, buffelli yeah. yeah. Wow, Not missing, not
2: missing many. i oh, from, no, from wherever, is he?
1: And what is unusual about that? A winger. Yeah. You know, a winger that they're, they're kicking uh, things. that You know, we've got our usual people. The guy that still um, amazes me and I just look on every time is Elliot Daly, mm. you know, just plonks it down, goes back, marches in, and this ball goes forever. Um, you know, the, the, the stress he puts on his joint. But again, it's a skill. He's blessed with that skill, and I think there's nothing wrong with that in the game. Um, if I go back to my time uh, being involved with England in the 20s, where we beat South Africa in the World Cup final in 2014 down in Eden Park, battering from the box, and we were staring down the abyss. And Aaron Morris took one from 56 meters. I think we were 11 nil down. I think at the stage took one for 56. I remember Walsh coming over the phone to me, Nick Walsh, uh, who was the coach at the time. I said, "JC, oh, got go this." I said, "Yeah." He put a good swing on. He get on it. It was like. Hmm. 56 is a long way. Anyway, he put that ball over, 11 3. It changed the whole mindset of our team. Just changes completely as a side. Just one little thing like that 56 meters, three points, our whole psyche went up. And that was a side. You know, when you talk about difficulty, Maritoji, um, Billy Burns, uh, Ross Moriarty. Um, you know, we had a really good young crop of players there that came in. But that, just that one moment, that ability to change the game. Why do we say, oh, you know, it's the negative side. It's not. It's the beauty of the game. Oh, yeah. I, I agree completely.
0: And just that question on a broader scale, is, do you think there's a team whose kicking game stands out above all, all others? And I'm thinking primarily internationally here.
1: I think France is, uh, has, has improved, but it's, proved, it's improved in the sense that it, it's, it based itself along Sean's philosophy. So kick long, defend high. Don't put it out.
0: Yeah. So
1: don't put it out. Don't give people lineouts. And I love it. He keeps the ball in play. He's asking a lot of his defense. I think you've got to give credit in the Premiership to people like Saracens because they've done it year after year after year. The amount of contestables that they compete for themselves, that they create for themselves in order to get the ball back, you know, it's a really, really good, worthy skill.
0: And one kick, one type of kick that comes under a lot of fire is the hoof down the middle. Uh, and going back to France's kick-long-defend high, would you argue that the hoof down the middle actually still does have a very strong value in the game of rugby? Or is that one that you'd like to see reduced slightly? Uh,
1: what do you mean? Just going straight down to a person's yeah. uh, not yeah. uh, I thought you meant the downtown where, you know, where everybody is trying to defend the 50-22s. So they, they cover those sides, they block that avenue off. Then as a kicker, if you've got the opportunity to... to Check, chase it, as I call it, put it underneath the sticks and get it to stop, then let them deal with it. I think. Obviously,
0: that's that's really nice. Yeah. What I mean there is if if Um, the defense is set and the fullback is in position, then the the territory kick.
1: So if you've got a long, if you've got a guy who can kick long, you know, so you're on 10 meters and uh, you've got somebody just outside their 22 and you can drive them back into the 22, he's got a decision to make whether he puts it out or he's going to hoof it back to you. Yeah. The thing is there as well. Now now you're starting to talk about the crux of the game as you're talking from a kicking point of view, is if your kicking game is such, and I can put three people back there, i.e. I'm interested in three people to hold that back channel, surely there's space along this front line that I've got to look at.
2: Yeah. Would, would it be true to say, John, that um, uh, and you, you call kicking an art, and it's absolutely, it's absolutely right, but is it still an art if when the barbarians have beaten England back in the summer and George Cruz backheels a conversion... Over the sticks is, is, that, is that art or science?
1: <laughs> it doesn't do us kicking coaches. <laughs> anything. Let's put it that way. You wouldn't you wouldn't put that in your portfolio if you were trying to tell, sell to somebody. But I mean, on any, the other, anyone can do it, John. I mean, Chilcott could have done it. Yeah, well, which he tried once. Which he <laughs> tried, and but there's there's I think. Was it Chris Jack or Ali Williams in an international? Um, Please forgive me for my memory, but he took a quick tap and cross field kicked it across the field for the winger to score. That is art. That is skill. Ability for an edge forward to carry and being able to kick as well. We blinker ourselves to say, oh, yes, this and that. But, you know, again, I come back to the philosophy that I've had and I've always had, you know, since I've been coaching, it's about run, kick, pass and God forbid you take any of those out, where you'll struggle to attack unless you've got a big monster pack that you can just stick it up your jumper and roll over.
3: You spend a lot of time teaching front rows how to put the crafty little grubber through.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, I'll tell you now, Nick, I'll tell you now. Uh, if you want to look at it, Danny Hobbs, semi-final against Ireland, World Cup under 20. He got himself on the wing. The winger is pointed it was Howard Packman, pointed a bit through, and he threaded it through for a try. Brilliant. So, no, we don't teach them. But if it does happen, it comes off. You give the old big, big name on the back job. <laughs> yeah. No. But that, what, what is wrong with that at junior level? What's, what's, what's wrong with that at junior level? Senior guys might think, ooh, gosh. But when you've got kids want to enjoy the game and get as much enjoyment out of it as possible, why not allow them to kick? Why do you ban them from kicking up to a certain age? I don't get it. But then again, there's a lot of things I don't get <laughs> speaking
0: of I think one thing we'll do just as we seek to wrap up I'm going to present to you you know the rugby law you would change question on our quick fire section we've had a few people suggest kicking laws that they would implement or change and I thought John I might put forward some of the ones that they said and you could simply say for or against whether you'd back it or you wouldn't back it from the slightly more normal ones to some slightly ridiculous ones and then we'll wrap up does that sound good yep Brilliant. Okay, so Jake Walmore said that you can't have a kick exchange of more than three on the bounce.
1: No, nope. against.
0: <laughs> against, okay. Brett Gosper said you can't kick out on the full at all.
1: Is this the, the X world Rugby?
0: Yes, yes. Chap.
1: Can't kick out on the full on the full. Um, okay, I'll concede a little bit here by moving the 22-metre line to a 10-metre line and you can only kick out from the 10-meter line
0: oh very interesting Andy Christie had two one was the held up shouldn't be a goal line dropout totally agree yeah and the other was get rid of respect the kicker
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I actually love sort of the noise and banter and all that business and yeah, I think there'd be nothing wrong with some tunes or you know, something going on. I actually be, be honest with you, and, and it's just we're not digressing you a little bit. I actually quite enjoy people booing and hissing the kicker because they're involved in the game. What I don't bloody like are those Mexican waves.
0: Yeah, I So I couldn't
1: agree Ban either. Mexican waves and get booing in. I'm happy with that.
0: <laughs> I, I was I was
2: at King's home for a game between the Southwest and London in the Divisional Championship when John Webb of Bath <laughs> lined up the first kick for the South West and was booed by the Gloucester crowd. So he's a, one, of the, one, of the, one of the first players to be booed by ho, his home support <laughs> because he wasn't quite home enough.
0: So
1: Yeah, uh, well, I, I've had this similar experience there where I played for the South and Southwest, and when I ran out and ran over across the other side, they booed me and said, um, get Tim Smith on. Um, so <laughs> we were in good company me and Webby there. For good reasons. For good reasons. The faithful were looking after their own.
0: So we've, got two, we've got two more. Toby Flood said, bring back the, the kickoff off the high tee.
1: Yeah, I like that. I'll give Floody his Floody due. I think that's great. I, I, th- I thought it was an art kicking off the tee for a restart. Yeah. And it also gave it a little bit of um, grandeur, so to speak, about the sport
0: the kickoff does because you set it up yeah 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 Yeah, i I quite like that as well and lastly and i actually can't remember who said this but someone and maybe chris or nick if you were there suggested that props take the goal kicks (laughs) (laughs) maybe it was nick that said that i don't know (laughs) it was not
1: I I would say that props are paid enough as it is, and to put an extra premium on them being goal kickers as well is going to take them into a different stratosphere. No, we can't have that.
2: Back back in the day, the Springboks had goal kicking props, did they not? Yeah, yeah. I think Oki Geffen was a famous one. And the
3: Aussies had the great goal kicking lock, John John Uh, Eels. Well, he could
2: kick a bit. Yeah. But he could do Um, most things, John, couldn't he? He could.
0: Uh, (laughs) Alan Martin?
2: Yeah. Alan Martin. Yeah.
0: George Cruz to that list. George yeah. Cruz.
2: Yeah. George Cruz. Yeah. <laughs> Nigel Redman.
1: Which game was that?
2: Uh, I just made that up, John.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I thought so.
1: <laughs> Fake news.
0: <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. John, good luck with both Bath and Leeds Types this season. Thank you so it's much. very exciting. You seem to have a lot going on. And yeah, like you say, you're doing what you love which is fantastic and Chris and Nick I'll hopefully see you guys soon thank you hey good to see you John
1: yeah thanks guys I really enjoyed that
0: get a copy of the rugby paper in stores on Sundays or have it delivered to you through our digital subscription we will see you next week for episode 30